I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending July 17th. In this episode, it's been a while since we've had a blockbuster deal in the semiconductor industry, but the wait is over. Analog Devices announced its intention to buy Maxim Integrated. The deal makes sense, though the reasons might not be immediately obvious. A discussion of 2020's first electronics mega merger. Also, people all over the world not only buy a lot of electronics, they also throw away a lot of electronics. E-waste is bad enough, but what makes it worse is that a lot of what we throw out is still useful. We talk with Serge Verdu, co-founder of Backmarket, a company that promotes the practice of refurbishing older electronics. Analog Devices Incorporated, ADI, was founded in 1965, making it one of the electronics industry's oldest integrated circuit manufacturers. As its name clearly states, the company specializes in analog devices. ADI has quietly grown to rank among the 15 largest semiconductor manufacturers, with annual sales that in the past couple of years have hovered around $6 billion. Analog ICs are just as critical as digital circuits, but the analog side of the business simply isn't as flashy. The average person buying a laptop is probably aware that Intel might be inside, and the average gamer today might have the specs of the latest NVIDIA GPU committed to memory. But the average consumer has likely never heard of ADI, let alone its much smaller and newer competitor, Maxim Integrated, which ADI just announced it intends to buy. ADI has offered to pay for Maxim with approximately $21 billion worth of its own stock. That would make Analog Devices' purchase of Maxim one of the biggest deals in the electronics industry in recent years, behind only Avago's purchase of Broadcom in 2015 for $37 billion and SoftBank's purchase of Arm in 2016 for $32 billion. That's according to EE Times reporter Nitin Dahad, who wrote the story for us. There's a link to a story on the podcast webpage, which you find by going to eetimes.com and clicking on the radio button on the nav bar, or just go straight to eetimes.com slash podcasts. Bolaji Oja was, until recently, AspenCore's global publisher. He recently stepped down from that position to do more reporting. He's a veteran journalist who has an uncanny knack for finding clues to corporate behavior buried in balance sheets. He investigated the finances of ADI and of Maxim and wrote a story about why he thinks ADI is buying Maxim. We have a link to that story, too, on our podcast webpage. International editor Junko Yoshida called up Bola to ask him about the proposed purchase. Was this a surprise to you, Bola? No, no, it, it, it wasn't a surprise. I think uh, a lot of people have said uh, over the course of the last uh, maybe a couple of years that um, they might have been having some discussions. Uh, I'm not sure if that is the case, but uh, I think for a lot of folks, they're quite aware that uh, Maxim might be on the market. The question was who uh, would make a play uh, for Maxim. And in this case, uh, ADI, you know, uh, one of the things that I have noticed about ADI, analog devices, is that they do these every two to three year deals where they bulk up. And so the timing was perfect for uh, for ADI 
Uh, and uh, Maxim was a willing, uh, you know, candidate, uh, I think. Uh, but I also think, you know, you have to give some kudos to uh, ADI's management in the sense that in the middle of all of this mayhem with uh, COVID-19, they were not hesitant to make a deal. You know, of course, you know, the coronavirus this wasn't going to stop anybody from making a deal. But you know what? They just thumbed their noses and said, look, you know what? We've got to do this. And uh, why not now? Right. Okay, so I want to talk about that deal. But, you know, from layman's terms, because I'm not like a financial wizard that you are, you know, from where I sit, analog devices and Maxim seem to have similar product portfolio. On a granular level, maybe they have different products within automotive or industrial. But on a big picture, analog devices, Maxim, have pretty much... Um, played in the similar segments of the electronics uh, industry. So, you know, first thing that came to my mind, uh, what's up with this? Are there more overlap than, you know, they complement each other? But you seem to have a different take on this. So I want to hear what you see from numbers. Well, you know, there are always overlaps. If you're looking at it from the product level, even when the when the buyer and the and the acquisition target seem to have what they call you know complementary you know products there are always overlaps i mean they are competitors right and they are competitors with other companies in this market so you'll find you'll find you know areas where their product overlap you'll find areas where they are, they target the same set of customers uh, you'll find areas where they use you know similar distributors not that not as much in this case but there are always overlaps like that right and i don't think that the issue for both adi and maxim is where you're looking at overlaps when you have overlaps however you do have a situation where you are both going after the same set of customers. So you're jostling for the same amount of cogs on the customer's books. You have to fight hard. You have to fight for the engineering socket. You have to fight to make sure that you're the actual suppliers and all of that. You have to fight hard to support support them from the distribution and the engineering and all of those sides. So from the product side, it's very, very clear whether they are whether they are you know direct competitors or whether it's just in adjacent markets, it's very very clear that there's a case here to be made for taking one competitor out of the market. Now I'm not sure that either Maxim or ADI is going to say that, that was, that's their goal, but of course this is what's going to happen. Now in terms of the in terms of the financials. You couldn't have, I, I don't, you know, I, I told you during the previous conversation that whoever, you know, helped uh, analog devices to put um, this deal together, they just, they just some great financial advisors. They did a fantastic job for analog devices. With $5 billion in debt, analog devices wasn't in a position to, well, they could have done it, but they weren't going to be. Um, happy to go into the into the into the finance market to go and borrow more money. It will have made, it will have increased their leverage. But in this case, they don't have to add. In fact, I'm not I'm not sure they even have to add a penny in additional debts. They you know so they keep their profile. They keep their their, their debt profile profile right. On top of that, okay, Maxim is a company with you know, $1.7 billion or so as at the end of their March quarter on its balance sheet. 
it has a debt, it has it had long-term debts of about one billion dollars. So on a net cash basis, Maxim is coming into the ADI uh, embrace with some seven hundred million dollars in cash. That's it. That's beautiful. That's good, good, clean cash that ADI can use for something else. But that is the number that everybody is putting out. The real number for me, from my perspective, is closer to $1.7 billion. Why do I say that? Well, because ADI, I mean, Maxim doesn't have to pay off its long-term debt right away. That's no reason. There's no comparing reason for it to do that. So they should come in with all of their cash. So what ADI will be getting will be about $1.7 to $2 billion in fresh, clean, you know, ready-to-go-to-market money which then they can use for other things. Now, what is the attract, what's the attraction here for Maxim's um, shareholders? Well, they can hang on tight and say they don't want to sell. And they want to see value get created through other means. But Maxim is under sales pressure. So is, so is ADI. ADI is doing better. ADI's operating margins are better. ADI's gross profit margins are better. So why not partner with a bigger company that can help you take your existing products to market, that can help you reduce your overall operating costs, push up your operating profit margins, and then if, you know, the, the Maxim executives had done what I would suggest they probably did, which is just say to the shareholders and the investors, all you need is to wait. Wait a couple of years and you can then cash in. So on, on, a, on a financial basis, I, I, I mean, yep. I've seen dozens of deals in this industry. This is one of the best that could have been put together where ADI is concerned. Right. Okay. When ADI bought Linear, the story was simpler though. But, you know, Maxim is a, such a you know, smaller player uh, in the analog business. Uh, why do you think that um, ADI is going after Maxim? Okay, so um, I, in the article that I wrote for E Times, I mentioned that you should by now stop looking at this Maxim deal. It is it is a okay. great deal. It's an important <laughs> deal. But you know what? You could yeah. just kind of get into this navel gazing situation where you're looking at linear, you're looking at maxim. The reality is very simply this. Why did ADI go for maxim? And what role, what piece of the puzzle is maxim in the broader big picture? ADI scheme of things. What exactly is ADI driving at? Where exactly is ADI headed? What do they want to do? What do they want? Now, I will say they want, and, I've, and I wrote this, I, I, will believe, I believe very personally that they want the analog crown. Not because they want to pound their chest and say, well, we're number one. I mean, this deal doesn't get them to be number one. TI, Texas Instrument, is still number one, but it gets them closer, just a little bit closer, okay? And they will do other deals. Now, why would a company want to be number one? There are very, there are a lot of reasons for that, okay? It's not because you want to say, well, we are number one. You want to wave your flag around all over the place. No. The reason you want to be number one is because of scale. It's because it helps with your volume of sales. It helps with the relationship that you have with the OEMs. It helps with, the relation, with basically being able to leverage what you currently have to reach a broader customer base. It helps with every single financial issues and measurement that you want to look at. So when you are number one, you are the top gun. You are the first to go to 
company for the biggest OEMs. So you get volume and you also improve your operating metrics. Okay. You can fill your fabs more. You can compete better. You can attract better engineering skills and resources. I mean, the positive part of it goes on and on and on. And in any case, who wants to be the perennial number two? Right. ADI is looking at the bigger target. Figuring out what those targets are is the next thing because that's what's going to determine what ADI buys next. Because in my opinion, they will be back in the market. They will, they have more money. They will have reduced debts. In a couple of years, ADI will be buying somebody again. So it's uh, your focus is more in line with what's next for ADI. This is really the stepping stone for the Maxim deal is a stepping stone, right? Correct. So the, the question is, is what's next? But beyond what's next, the real question is this. What's the grand plan? Where is ADI headed? And who do they need along the way to get there? Right. And But we haven't really heard from ADI what the grand, grand plan is Nobody, just yet. No, why, why would they say that? If, they, if, you, if the competitors <laughs> find out what their grand plan is. <laughs> what their what the yeah, plan of is. Course. Yeah. So they, they're not, they're not going to say it, but look. If you look at the assembly of things that they are putting together and the direction that they are going and some of the hints that they, they, they talk about uh, and uh, Vincent Roche's statement about having the tailwinds at their back, this is a company on the move. No competitor should underestimate ADI now. Now, the key question is this. Will ADI be able to swiftly complete that integration so that it can move on to the next target? Because it has to completely do that integration, do it and execute it very, very well, which they are used to doing, and then not let it hinder them in, in doing that. Because one of the major problems that some companies run into is this. They make an acquisition that's so big, they're busy digesting it and not looking at their longer-term goal. That longer-term goal is the way ADI plays, and that's what I'm looking forward to unravel. I guess stay tuned. Thank you, Junko. It's right. always a pleasure. Okay, thanks. ADI's proposal to buy Maxim Integrated is the biggest announced deal thus far this year, but another likely to be as big or bigger has been rumored. SoftBank has long talked about a potential IPO for ARM, but earlier this week, SoftBank was reported to have retained Goldman Sachs because it received an offer to buy ARM. SoftBank bought ARM for $32 billion. It's not unreasonable to expect SoftBank to sell it or at least try to, for an amount in that neighborhood. Note that the unnamed source for this rumor reportedly said any possible sale might fall through. Whether or not there really is a serious buyer is still unknown, as is the timing for either a sale or an IPO. We've got a story on that too. Find the link on the podcast webpage. Recently, EE Times began running a regular series of columns about the circular economy. It's written by Michael Kirshner, an engineer versed in the regulations that cover the production, use, and disposal of electronic products. A linear economy, if you will, is one where a thing is made, that thing is used until no longer needed, and then it's disposed of. The whole process is a one-way trip. A circular economy, on the other hand, is one where a thing is made, we try to make sure someone keeps using it as long as possible while it's still operable, We try to reuse or recycle as much of it as possible, and only then do we trash what's unusable. 
There's a lot more to it than that, of course, which is why Kirshner's column is a regular feature. Every year, manufacturers around the world together produce an impressive amount of electronics, but consumers also trash a staggering amount every year, too. By one estimate, over 50 million tons a year. A significant amount of that electronic waste, or e-waste, is toxic, and the most common methods of disposal allow those toxic compounds back into the ground, water, and air. We are poisoning ourselves. One of the keys to reducing waste, one of the key practices in creating a circular economy, is reusing electronics. Back Market was founded in Europe in 2014 to encourage the practice of refurbishing electronic products instead of throwing them away. The company doesn't do any refurbishing itself. It is a market for refurbished products. It works with other entities to do the refurbishing and certifies the refurbished products are safe to buy. Today, we're speaking with Serge Verdu, co-founder of Back Market. So uh, we're talking mostly about consumer electronics. Is that true? Yeah, any kind of electronics, uh, consumer electronics, so smartphones, tablets, uh, computers, audio is a big category. And then we, you know, kitchen appliances, uh, home appliances, uh, pretty much everything that you could buy in a Best Buy, you know, uh, new. Uh, we like to say that uh, you can buy uh, on back market uh, certified refurbished. We're talking a lot of tonnage, things being thrown away. Once upon a time, uh, there was planned obsolescence. Um, the idea that uh, you wouldn't necessarily make something that would uh, you weren't making it to last, perhaps. These days, a lot of the electronics include technology that really legitimately gets outdated fairly quickly. How does that phenomenon play into what people consider waste, what people throw out? So we think plan obsolescence is still very real, uh, that a lot of manufacturers uh, are actively uh, pushing uh, new products to be sold, even though the latest generations are still very valid. And there are actually some very large manufacturers have been fined for uh, doing so. And so I think, you know, historically, more of the plan obsolescence was mostly around the hardware, uh, having parts that, you know, for some reason, after three, four, five years, kind of uh, breaks down, uh, even though the whole thing... Uh, uh, the whole product would be uh, perfectly, uh, you know, functional other than this part. What's been, uh, you know, in the last decade or so, what's uh, been added to this hardware plan obsolescence is the software compatibility. So with uh, smartphones and, and, and uh, lab uh, computers, for instance, that require uh, operating systems and more and more applications being developed for these, um, there's, there's been a lot of uh, cases of examples where the, you, know, you, you have a perfectly functioning uh, tablet and uh, for some reason the, you can't download the latest app because your operating system, you, know, you can't download the latest operating system. And so the, the app that you wanted to use um, cannot work on this, on, this, uh, on this device. So plan obsolescence is still very real. Uh, what is changing slowly, but is changing is that um, manufacturers uh, I've had to address it. Uh, I mean, they've had to address it sometimes because they're being pushed by um, 
authorities uh, or uh, to, to do so and they're being fine. But, but frankly, the biggest reason they've, they're addressing it is consumers, you know, don't uh, deal or cope with that or don't accept it anymore as much as, the, as they used to because I think there's more and more awareness of this phenomenon. And as a result, uh, lots of uh, large manufacturers are making an effort, uh, or at least uh, publicly they're saying they're making an effort at ex- expanding the lives of the devices, making them more compatible with, with more OS, but there's operating systems. But I think there's still a long uh, way to go. Does it seem to you that authorities are trying to solve a problem or are they responding to consumer desire? I think it depends which region of the world you're talking about uh, first, mm-hmm. because uh, I would think that, uh, you know, in, in Europe lately, uh, the U- European uh, Union has been more active uh, trying to go after environmental uh, concerns. Uh, and, and, and as a result, that's one of the uh, areas that they've looked into uh, is, is to kind of uh, fight uh, the, the planned obsolescence, which they do see as a, as a negative impact on the environment so you but you know you could argue are they going after this because the you know the constituents or the, the population ask them to probably to some extent from the consumer side on both sides of the atlantic if we talk about these two regions uh the us in the us the, the right to repair and the uh the, the uh, awareness of a uh, plan of solutions is, is definitely increasing and as a result, consumers are uh, more and more vocal about uh, about that and about, uh, you know, vocal and, and, and angry when they say that the, the, the very fine laptop or computer or tablet that they bought a couple of years ago or a few years ago doesn't work anymore with the application that, that they want to use. So it's, it's becoming more and more of, a, of an issue. Right. Um, I'm glad you brought up right of repair. Um I could learn more about it. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that some of our listeners would like to hear. Uh, could you define what right of repair is and why it's an issue? Uh, right of repair is a movement which is still, uh, you know, relatively speaking, is in, in its infancy, even though it's been going on for a few years. But where the the very concept is that uh, once you buy a product. It belongs to you as an individual, as its owner, and so you should be uh, able to repair it. Uh, And that means if a part is broken, uh, buy a new part and make it functional again, or uh, replace a part or or, or get it fixed. Well, now, forgive me for interrupting. I've scanned end-user licensing agreements with some of my new electronics, and I don't necessarily, I mean, some of them, it it seems like they're, especially with software, software, I no longer, there's software companies telling me I no longer own the software. I'm renting it or, or subscribing to it. Um, My first question is, is that the same for the hardware itself? And then the second question is, if something gets broken and I want to fix it, I do have the right to fix it. I just I just invalidate the warranty, or is that statement incorrect? So, yeah, talking about the right to repair, uh, generally speaking, people talk mostly about the hardware, but you're right, there's also some software implications. But if we talk about the hardware uh, more for a second, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really where the you know most of the of the discussions and the and the right to repair movement is about is the fact that uh, when you buy a uh, hardware piece of hardware you're not renting mm-hmm. it, it it's yours uh, so so uh, unlike you know software where you could argue there's there's a uh, different models I mean uh, generally speaking people uh, still to a large extent, buy their the smartphones, they buy their smart, the, 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 the computers, and they, they buy their pieces of hardware. So the idea behind that is that as you own this piece of equipment, you should be able to uh, uh, fix it or get it fixed if something happens to it. The, what the right to repair uh, fights against is that a lot of manufacturers uh, are ch- actively trying to either prevent you from repairing your uh, hardware or they make it so complicated and expensive that there is clearly a very strong incentive to buying a new one instead of fixing it. And that's what the right to repair is, is going after, is the fact that not only should you be able, you know, should you be allowed to repair your uh, hardware, but there should be a, a convenient and economical way of, uh, of, uh, of doing it. Because if uh, the OEMs, uh, original equipment manufacturers, make it so expensive by, for instance, you know, the tactics that exist include only author- uh, having authorized, you know, uh, repair uh, shops. But, you know, if, if in practice you only authorize a handful uh, of partners and that the, the prices that you command or the guidelines that are so stringent that it becomes so expensive and inconvenient, then de facto, you know, nobody's going to actually uh, repair it. They're going to go and, and buy a new one. And these are all the tactics, those tactics that that uh, or, uh, or or so so one one way um, manufacturers are reducing it is having these very strict rules about who's authorized to do it. Another very um, current uh, or, or widespread tactic is to only allow for uh, original uh, parts that come from the manufacturers. Uh, but then, you know, then those manufacturers, those very manufacturers, either don't don't sell those parts, <laughs> or they sell them at a price which is worse. So it's kind of a you know a catch twenty two. There is if you only allow uh, original parts, but you don't sell the parts, de facto you kind of you know prohibiting any any repair. So that's that's what the right to repair is going after. So does back market perform refurbishing, or does it manage a network of refurbishers? So back market is a platform. We don't refurbish ourselves. Uh, what we do is we connect uh, the network of refurbishers, and to date we have more than 1,200 uh, all over the world in over 30 countries. We connect them to the consumers through our platform, and we vet them. So we define the uh, guidelines uh, that are required to uh, the, the tests and the uh, guidelines around the product functionalities uh, for the refurbishers to be allowed to sell on back market. Uh, for instance, one of the key guidelines is that all the products sold on back market has to have to be 100% functional. They have to be fully functional and have the same performance as a, a brand new product. Uh, and then there's other guidelines around there's guidelines around how you get there uh, how many you know the types of tests that need to be done to to uh, guarantee the performance and there are also guidelines around the aesthetic uh, grades of the product we all the sellers on back market have to um, sell 
within five grades. The best one is called Mint, which is literally like new. So you wouldn't see the difference with a, new, a brand new product. All the way down to our lowest grade, which you know uh, is called Stallone, which because it's a little bit beat up, and uh, and uh, and has you could have a few scratches here and there, and so we define those guidelines, and then the the refurbishers have to adhere to these guidelines. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Uh, I, I know in my own experience, um, buying used phones, uh, we had like one great experience. And we got, you know, buying it on, uh, you know, through one of the, you know, one of eBay or something, I guess it was. And uh, so, oh, that that worked out fantastic. And then we tried it like two or three more times. And every single time after that, it was just a miserable experience. So having a trusted, I've got to imagine that having a, um, a trusted broker is an incredibly valuable thing for the for the market to have. Yeah, and that's definitely our we see it as our mission to create this uh, trust between the refurbishers and and the consumers. And uh, the way we do that is that, unlike other platforms that really focus mostly on price, uh, at back market the way we. Uh, select and keep the quality of the experience high is that we we use first because it's a hundred percent it's an online platform we track uh, all the interactions between customers and, and sellers uh, more than 15 data points on every single transaction so we allow we're able to monitor that the experience of the customers is uh, what we want it to be and we uh, reward the best uh, the reward the best refurbishers in terms of user experience. So not only the quality of the products that they sell, but also the quality of the user experience. Do they ship the product on time? Do they respond to customers' you know questions uh, promptly? Are the customers happy at the end of the experience? And all of that is being used to really push the best ones and to e- exclude the the ones that don't perform at the at the level that we need to. Um, to encourage more recycling, more reuse, what would you like to see happen? So, so the, the way we see our mission is to, I think awareness is the number one uh, thing we can do is to, uh, driving awareness of the e-waste issue is, uh, is, is probably what can drive the biggest change. It's one thing to be aware of the problem. It's another thing to know how to solve it when you're, when you're a consumer. So, Having right. an easy way uh, to uh, resell uh, your old uh, equipment is one of the things we, we're doing. Uh, so we're doing it in Europe. It's going to launch in the uh, US uh, any, any month. Like allowing people, consumers to resell their old equipment. How many people do, we, do you know or do you know that have you know, two or three, four maybe old smartphones in their drawers? It's, it's a lot of it is happening today. So knowing that there's a way that we resell it. And then, of course, encouraging people through to, to buy uh, uh, used equipment if they don't see the need, because in many cases, they don't really have the need for a, for a brand new one. So that's how we, uh, we go about trying to solve the issue. Back market calculates it has saved 1,500 tons of e-waste. Based on smartphones sold in 2019 alone, the company figures that is 21,000 tons of natural resources saved by not making new phones. 
Now, those numbers are a drop in the bucket compared to the millions of tons of e-waste created every year. But you got to start somewhere, and back market started only in 2014. Also, most smartphones weigh less than 6 ounces, or roughly 170 grams. So if you think about it, even 1,500 tons is actually quite a lot. A couple of specifics following what we heard in that interview. Regarding planned obsolescence. In 2018, Italy fined both Apple and Samsung explicitly for planned obsolescence. For the practice of distributing software updates, they knew would compromise the performance of their phones. We also discussed the right to repair, which as we noted is controversial. There are several organizations fighting to make right to repair a literal legal right. A prominent one among them is Repair.org. Apple is often called out as one of the companies fighting against right to repair because it's one of the world's most popular brands and because it is particularly active trying to block proposals for right to repair legislation. EE Times will continue covering the issue of the circular economy. Look for Michael Kirshner's column called Closing the Loop. Also, my colleague Barb Jorgensen from EPS News was working on a story on back market as we entered the studio for this podcast. There should be a link on the podcast webpage when we go live. If you don't see it, it will be there the moment her story is published. Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of interesting events in technology history. As one of America's greatest philosophers once said, time keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking into the future. Today, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to July 20th, 1969. Perhaps like many other kids that evening, I was dragged out of bed by my parents who plopped me down in front of our TV and they told me I was about to see something I'd always remember. They were right. This is essentially radio, so we can't show you what I and millions of others saw, but we can replay what we all heard. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That was Neil Armstrong on NASA's Apollo 11 mission, stepping out of the lunar module and onto the moon. I know that inspired some of you to be engineers, or maybe scientists or mathematicians. My STEM skills have always been a little weak, but it inspired me to write about technology. It's been more than 50 years since that day. Over the next few years, a few more people walked on the moon. We've sent probes out into deep space, lofted telescopes that have captured stunning images of formations that the day before would have been literally unimaginable. We've landed robots on Mars, and we've finally figured out a way to build Ziplocs right into food packages. We've accomplished a lot, and all this time later, maybe we're a little jaded with that one small step for a man. Long ago, I visited Grumman for a story on military electronics, and the person dragging me around stopped and pulled me into a room filled with engineers who had all participated in building the lunar module. I cannot remember anybody other than new parents who ever looked prouder. I'm not joking. It almost brought tears to my eyes, watching those old guys swelling up with pride. Old guys. At the time, they were younger than I am now. Anyway, doing this feature, every once in a while, I get the opportunity to remember not just that something happened 
but how it felt at the time. Half a century ago, I sat in my pajamas in front of a black and white 19-inch zenith, wiped the sleep from my eyes, and watched something so extraordinary, I still can't find words to express it. That's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending July 17th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.